Okay, praises be to our loving Father that we are again gathered together to study His words and His commandments. Now, of course, we're going to study today all about Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, which is foundational for all of us because we consider this to be what our calling and election is based upon because it's based upon the work of Yahuwah that He will do in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Many of us who came from the Iglesia de Cristo are very familiar with this passage. Now that we no longer belong to the institution called the Blessed Christo, does it mean there's no more significance uh, that Isaiah 43, 5-6 hold for us today? This is what we're going to study in our lesson today in preparation really for our special assembly this coming Saturday. So this was actually brought up by one of our assembly members in a question that was given to me. This question is as follows. Hi Paul, Brother John. May the blessings from our God, Yahuwah, and His Son, Yahusha, be with you always. Is there another or deeper meaning or explanation on the familiar Bible verse, from the Far East will I bring your offspring descendants? Thank you, Paul, brother. And so the question is, the familiar verse that he is talking about is Isaiah 43, 5-6. The question is, is there another or deeper meaning or explanation about this passage from the far east will I bring your offspring or descendants. So let's go ahead and take a look at Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is the passage in question which we are familiar with. Now, what is the scope of work or the work, the essence of the work described in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6? Because when it comes to prophecy, oftentimes when you look at the context of the prophecy, it tells you the work about the prophecy, right? It tells you when it will be fulfilled. It even tells you the place, which is the context of the prophecy. So let's begin with the work of the prophecy. What is it all about? In Isaiah 43, 5-6, it mentions, I will bring your descendants, bring my sons from afar, bring my daughters from the ends of the earth. So the key word there is to bring. And the Hebrew word for bring means to bring into. And so it is the work of Yahuwah in Isaiah 43, 5-6, to bring people into someone so that they can become the sons and daughters of Yahuwah, the daughters and sons and daughters of God. And who do you suppose that is? What is the work of Yahuwah? This is why we read the verse earlier before we sang the hymn and prayed the work of Yahuwah is to bring people to who? Our king, Yahusha. And so this is the work depicted in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Now, who are they specifically? Can we find out? Well, in John chapter 10, verse 16, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so who are those who are going to be brought together to be brought to Yahushua in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6? The other sheep of our king, Yahushua, when he was here on earth, the other sheep, they were not yet there, because after all, it is in the first century. It is there in Jerusalem. This work is about the other sheep, not in that place, not in that time period. Now, who specifically 
was Yahushua speaking about? And who specifically does Isaiah 43, 5 to 6 speak of? In Matthew 15, 24, Yahushua says, But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so when Yahushua was here on earth, he encountered a group of people, the Yahudim, but he said he was sent to look for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, Israel as a whole is composed of two houses, house of Judah, the house of Israel. When Yahushua was in Jerusalem, his audience, his audience primarily were from the house of Judah. But he also said he's looking for the house of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. And so in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, when it mentions descendants that will be brought together to bring to Yahushua, he is referring to the sheep from the house of Israel. What proves this? Well, we read a while ago, 5 to 6. Let's read verse 1 of Isaiah 43. But now, thus says Yahuwah, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And so in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, when it mentions descendants, we need to ask ourselves, descendants of who? Descendants of Jacob, descendants of Israel. This is why in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, these descendants of Israel, they represent the sheep of the, ten, of the house of Israel. And so what Yahuwah will do is to bring them together and bring them to our king, Yahusha. These are the tribes of Israel. Well, why are we sure they represent the tribes of Israel? Because when it says descendants, the Hebrew word used is Hebrew 2233 Zerah, which means in Hebrew, sowing, seed, semen, virah. And so it is a physical descendant who will become a spiritual descendant as well. Isaiah 43, 5 to 6 is specifically talking about a work of bringing together the physical descendants of Jacob and Israel, the sheep from the house of Israel that Yahushua said he's going to be bringing together which he calls his other sheep. Now, why is there a need for the sheep of our King Yahushua, who are from the tribes of Israel, to be gathered in the prophecy in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6? In the book of Deuteronomy 28, 64, then Yahuwah will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other, there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Why is there a need to bring together, to gather together the tribes of Israel? That's because they are to be scattered. What we read to you in Deuteronomy 28 is depicting the curses that Yahuwah has made together with the blessings. If you remember, there is this famous reading of the curses and the blessings in Deuteronomy. And so one of the curses that Yahuwah has imposed upon his people is if they will be disobedient, if they will be unfaithful to him, Yahuwah is going to scatter them all throughout the nations. And we know what happened to Judah. We know what happened to Israel. Israel became adulterous, 
Israel betrayed Yahuwah. They became unfaithful to him. So what happened to the people of Israel? They were scattered among all the nations. However, because Yahuwah's love for Israel, remember what Yahuwah said about Israel? He is my firstborn son. I will never forget him. Yahuwah in his infinite love, Yahuwah in his compassion and mercy, he has a plan even though he will scatter Israel. What is that plan? That plan was given here in the book of Hosea 1, 1 to 2. The word of Yahuwah that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the sons of Joash, king of Israel. When Yahuwah began to speak to Hosea, Yahuwah said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from Yahuwah. Yahuwah is going to cause Israel to scatter because they performed the act of harlotry. In other words, they were spiritually adulterous. They worshiped other gods instead of Yahuwah. So Yahuwah would punish Israel. He would later on punish Judah, but he would punish Israel first, right? But even though Yahuwah has declared a punishment of scattering the tribes of Israel, in this message of Yahuwah to Hosea, he also has a plan for the redemption. And how was his plan depicted? How was this revealed? Yahuwah tells Hosea to marry a harlot and have children with a harlot. And they were to be given names. And what were the names to be given to the children born of harlotry? Well, Yahuwah says, if you keep reading Hosea chapter 1, her names were to be Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, and Lo Ami. These were the children to be named. And this tells us the importance of naming. Because in the name, there's a message to the name, especially if it's a Hebrew name. Right? There's a message Yahuwah is trying to convey here, which is found in the names that Yahuwah said for Hosea to give to his children. Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, Lo Ami. What does Jezreel mean? God sows. What does lo ruhama mean? No mercy. What does lo ami mean? It means not a people. And so when in punishing Israel, Yahuwah is telling Hosea, this is what he's going to do in scattering his people Israel. What is he going to do? He's actually going to sow them in the different territories and in the different lands wherein he will scatter his people. And then he will show no mercy and they will not be a people anymore. And so, yes, Yahuwah is punishing Israel. Yahuwah dispersed Israel, causing them to scatter. But he also has a plan for the redemption. This is why before we conclude Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 10, this is what it says. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And so in Yahuwah's plan, even though there is a punishment, there is a curse of scattering, Yahuwah will cause that to work together for good. Isn't that what Yahuwah does all the time? Even when he punishes his people, he will cause something to work together for good. And so when Yahushua caused them to disperse, 
Yahuwah says, I'm going to call the children of Hosea Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, Lo Ami. Why? Because I'm going to show his, my work of redemption through these names. This is why at the end, if you notice at the bottom, you are the sons of the living God. Doesn't that remind you of Isaiah 43, 5 to 6? What did Yahuwah call the descendants of Israel and Jacob? My sons and my daughters. You see, in the end, Yahuwah has a plan for Israel. Yes, he scattered them. But in scattering them, Yahuwah is actually sowing. And when you sow something, what do you get? When you plant something, what can you expect? A harvest. You're going to reap, right? This is why when he called Israel Jezreel, it's because eventually Yahuwah knows he's going to reap. God will reap. Lo Ruhama, when God begins to reap, he will show mercy again. And he will show, and he will make Israel a people again. And so in the names Jezreel, Lo Ruhama, and Lo Ami, Yahuwah is basically showing the punishment Yahuwah causes to work together for their good. This is why in Hosea 1.10, it mentions in the end, there's a happy ending. They will be called the sons of the living God. But who is the focal point so that this prophecy can be fulfilled? In 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, and not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so in the plan of Yahuwah, how can a people who were sowed, who did not receive mercy, who were no longer a people, become now recipients of mercy, becoming a people in the harvest of Yahuwah's work of salvation? It is through our King, Yahusha, because 1 Peter 2, 9-10 is preaching about those who have become a chosen generation, a holy nation, a people through Yahusha, our King. However, does it mean the prophecy was fulfilled completely in the first century? No. This is why we have Isaiah 43, 5-6, because Ezra tells us in 64, in the verse 64, so a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah. And so the Bible says that after Israel became captives, right? And then Judah is next, they became captives, sent to Babylon. Eventually, Yahuwah reaches his hand and he sets his people free again. They were given the opportunity to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. But most of the people, they stayed in Babylon. How many were able to return? Only 42,360. And when you look at the genealogy, when you look at the ancestry of the 42,360, who are they? According to the list of Ezra chapter 2, of the 42,360 who returned to Judah, 30,360 of them came from Judah. The other 12,000 whose lineage were missing were from the other tribes who had escaped to Judah and had not gone into the Assyrian captivity, but were taken with Judah into Babylon. And so this tells us that when Yahuwah reached out his hand so that those who were in captivity can be brought back to Jerusalem, 
only a remnant were able to make it. And of the remnant, an overwhelming majority came from the tribe of Judah. This is why when Yahushua was here on earth and he was preaching to his audience, his Hebrew audience, he was primarily teaching to the tribe of Judah. This is why Yahushua says, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And James himself says, a servant of God and the Lord Yahushua Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so James acknowledges that even in the first century, the tribes of Israel, they were still scattered where? Throughout the nations. And even the Jewish historian Josephus said, the 10 tribes are beyond the Euphrates till now and are an immense multitude not to be estimated by number. So according to Yahushua, according to James, according to Josephus, in the first century when Yahushua was here on earth, well, the 10 tribes, well, they remained spread out across the Euphrates. They were not there when Yahushua was preaching the word of God. So when Yahushua was rejected as king, because Yahushua came and he gave them, he wanted to give them the kingdom. He would become their king, but they rejected Yahushua. What did they do to Yahushua? They killed him. Right? And so all of this, the opportunity would have to be postponed now. This is why there's a second advent of our king, Yahushua. In his second advent, he would again present the kingdom. But this time, the people of Israel will accept what Yahushua is going to present. But what we know in the first century, the tribes of Israel remain scattered. Well, where do they go? When they were taken captive by Assyria, where were they taken to? In the book of 2 Kings 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel, this is the house of Israel, away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And so when the house of Israel were taken captive, Assyria brought them to different places. They were dispersed. Where were they dispersed to? In a place called Hala, Habor, River Gozan. Now, where are these places now? Well, according to the researchers there at the God culture, um, they identified Habor, Hala, and Mead to be a place there in Turkey, which we identify today as the Kurds. And so we know that the tribes of Israel a big portion of them were sent there, but an even bigger portion of those who were tribes of Israel actually found its place all the way to the Philippine Islands. And we studied this before in one of our BHP projects. And because the 12 tribes uh, found them, themselves in the Philippines, uh, we are not surprised that throughout the Philippine archipelago, you have Hebrew names of the different mountains, different places all across the Philippine archipelago. And so this is a good indication that indeed the tribes of Israel, they went all the way to the islands of the sea in the far east. In fact, even uh, Pigafetta, if you remember his journal notes, when they visited the Philippines, because they wanted to bring Catholicism to the Philippines. What did they notice when they got there? Well, according to his journal, then he asked whether they were Moors or Gentiles and in what they believed. The answer that they did not perform any other adoration 
but only joined their hands, were looking up to heaven, and that they called their God Abba. Hearing this, the captain was very joyful. On seeing that, the first king raised his hand to the sky and said that he wished it were possible for him to be able to show the affection which he felt towards him. And so we know because of history, because of geography, and because of this journal note, that indeed the tribes of Israel, a big portion of the tribes of Israel, made it to the islands of the sea in the far east. And so there are 12 uh, tribes of Israel waiting to be harvested there in the Philippine archipelago. How many is there to be harvested? Well, in the book of Hosea 1.10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. That's a lot. But how many would actually be able to make it uh, to the return into the homeland, to make it to the millennium? In Isaiah 10, uh, though your people of Israel be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, Jehovah Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. Yes, Yahuwah sowed Israel in different lands, namely the Kurds, the Philippine Archipelago, and from the Philippines all over the world, right? And so Israel and the tribes of Israel can be found throughout the world. However, even though they become as numerous as the sand by the sea, only a remnant will be able to return to the promised land. In this case, the millennial kingdom. And so what will Yahuwah do in preparation for that time when they will again be able to enjoy the promised land? Let's read the book of Isaiah 11, 11, 12. It shall come to pass in that day that Yahuwah shall set his hand again the second time. Do you remember the first time when Yahuwah did this? When they were in captivity where? In Babylon. Yahuwah set his hand but how many, how many uh, actually went back to Jerusalem to the promised land? How many? Only 40,000 plus, right? And so the Bible says Yahuwah is going to set his hand again a second time. He's going to bring people back to the promised land. And where will they come from? Bible says Yahuwah will, shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Paphos and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And so when Yahuwah will reach out again to bring his people together, where will they be coming from? Bible mentions from Egypt, Paphos and Cush, now, who are those who were dispersed in those areas, according to history, after 70 AD? Remember 70 AD? After Yahushua was rejected as king, he died, resurrected, went to heaven. He said to Judah, he said to Jerusalem, uh, you're going to be surrounded by an army because you rejected me as king. Sure enough, 70 AD, this was fulfilled. Judah, Jerusalem, they were destroyed, and many went to Egypt, to Paphos, and Cush, but Yahuwah says he will also gather from those who are from Judah, from these places where they were scattered into. But where also will Yahuwah uh, reach his hand a second time so that he can bring them together, bring them to Yahusha. Again, 
from Assyria, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And so this is basically describing the, the place in Kurdistan and the islands of the sea. And so the Bible, if you notice in Isaiah and Jeremiah, it keeps mentioning again and again and again the islands of the sea. What does that tell us? It tells us there's going to be a work of gathering and bringing together a people of God that will begin there in the islands of the sea. It is something significant, but not many people really seem to focus on that. But the Bible is always telling us about the islands in the sea. Well, where will these islands be coming from? Because there's many islands throughout the world, right? Islands in the sea. Well, in the book of Jeremiah 31, 10 to 11, hear the word of Yahuwah, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahuwah has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Where is this isles? wherein Yahuwah will be gathering, harvesting his people from. It is the isles afar off, islands from a far off place. Where is a far off place? From the east. And the word east depicted there in Hebrew, it is Mizrak. What is Mizrak? It is the place where the sun rises. And so it is the far east. This is why there's a distinction between two Hebrew words, which mean east. One is Kadem, one is Mizrah. In Isaiah 43, it is Mizrah, not Kadem. What's the difference? In the Smith's Bible dictionary, the Hebrew term Kadem properly means that which is before or in front of a person and was applied to the east from the custom of turning in that direction when describing the points of the compass before, behind, or right and the left representing respectively east, west, south, and north. The term was generally used, refers to the lands lying immediately eastward of Palestine. However, on the other hand, Mizrak is used of the far east. And so in Yahuwah's work of bringing people together to be brought to Yahusha, to become sons and daughters of Yahuwah, it includes a place called the far east, and the islands in the far east. This is why we believe there is a great, there was a, there's a great harvest there in the islands of the sea in the far east because the tribes of Israel were sowed. They were taken there after their captivity and they grew in number and there's a time for harvesting. When will that harvesting time come? When will this prophecy be fulfilled, right? which is one of the things that we need to identify. In Isaiah 43, 5-6, we go back to the prophecy. I believe it mentions also ends of the earth. There's something we need to understand about prophecy, and prophecy really needs to be understood from the context of Yahuwah's redemptive work, his work of redemptive history. And when we look at that from that context, we can see patterns. The, prophet, the prophets spoke in similitudes and multiplied visions. This is why the ends of the earth, I believe, pertains to a time. 
because ends of the earth begins with the Hebrew word katse, ends, katse. Katse, if you look at the scope of the word, the definition, can refer to an end of a certain time. Now, of course, usually when you combine ends and earth, usually it refers to the land, it refers to a place. But when you look at the poetic nature of this prophecy, and with the context of redemptive history, we know it can also pertain to a time, a time close to the end, at the borders, at the extremity. And so when we try to identify the time frame, what also do we need to look at? We need to look at the rest of scriptures, because truth be told, even if we were to remove ends of the earth from Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, other passages of scripture will tell us the time markers involved in this work of bringing together the tribes of Israel. Yeah, and this is what we want to share with you. What is one example? In the book of Matthew 24, verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Yahushua is being asked by his disciples for some signs. The sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And so what does our King Yahushua tell him? And you will hear of wars and rumors of war, see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And so there are several things we need to understand from this passage. Number one, our King Yahushua was asked for a sign. And when these signs begin to take place, it's the beginning of sorrows, okay? The beginning of sorrows. And at the same time, it is at the doors. What does that mean? It is, it is at the ends of the end of the age because Yahushua was being asked for the signs of the end of the age. And so we can say that the end of the age, the beginning of it, right? The beginning of the end of the age will correspond to the signs given here by our king Yahushua. Now, when our king Yahushua gives these signs, what are the characteristics of these signs? Well, it has to be global. It has to be devastating. And it will have to bring so much fear and feeling of helplessness so people begin to stop relying on human wisdom and power and they begin to look up to God. And so the signs basically represent a warning, a warning of Yahuwah that people need to begin to prepare, to repent, and to go look, at, look to our King Yahusha. So what were these signs that were global, devastating, and caused people to seek out the help of Yahuwah Well, in Matthew 24, 6 to 8, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to, to pass, but the end is not yet. It's only the beginning of the end, or, or the beginning of the ends, the beginning of sorrows. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And so Yahushua is giving us here some signs. Now, of course, there's always war. There's always been war. 
right? There's always been kingdom against kingdom. There's always been, there's always been famines and pestilences, but for one to qualify as a sign, it has to be global. It has to be, it has to reach a level where people feel helpless and they don't know what to do, and it will cause them to turn to Yahuwah. That's the sign because it's a warning. It's like Yahuwah wants to shake up the world so that people can begin to take him seriously because human tendency is for people to kind of take Yahuwah for granted, right? Take God for granted. They go on their own life and they forget all about him. And so from time to time, Yahushua is going to shake things up. And these are the signs. These are warnings that people need to pay attention to. Brethren, if we want to fully prepare for our salvation, we need to be cognizant. We need to observe and look at the times. Because when we look at the times, we see patterns. And when we look at what Yahushua is speaking here, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And he also mentions nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, right? We studied this before. There's been many wars, but this one is a kind of war that will involve many nations, a kind of war that has never happened before. Because if it happened before, and it's just like every other war in history, then it would not be a sign. You get it? This is, has to be categorically different. Categorically different. How so? But what was fulfilled that meets the qualifications of the sign mentioned here by King Yahusha? It was World War Number 1, 1914 to 1918. This was not an ordinary war because eventually more than a hundred nations joined the conflict during World War Number 1. Right? But Yahusha says the end is not yet nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Sure enough, there was another world war. And up to this very moment in time, there's still many wars that are being fought, right? And when we look at the phrase nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom in the Greek, it's uh, the word used for nation is actually ethnos. It's like ethnicity, like ethnic wars. And today, there are many ongoing conflicts. This is ongoing wars and conflicts back in 2021. So it's all over the world, right? Not to mention Russia and Ukraine, but why we believe that World War One was the war that marks the ends of the earth is because of what happened right after the end of World War One. What did our King Yahushua say? Well, he said there's going to be war, and then there's going to be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Did you know right after World War One? From 1914 to 1918, something major happened after World War I in 1918. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it was? What happened in 1918? <laughs> right after the finish of World War I. I mean, war taking place all over the world. It finally finishes in 1918, and you thought you were home free, right? No more problems in the world. And all of a sudden, here comes the next event, the next sign. What is that? Yeah. It was the Spanish influenza. And this was a pandemic. The Spanish flu began in 1918. And this was the death rate of the pandemic. Look at that. I forget how many people died. But I think 18 million, how many people died? That's 15, oh my goodness. 50 million people, you see that? 50 million people died. 
that's more than the, the people who died in World War I, which, is like, which I believe is 15 million. This is 50 million, right? And so this was spread throughout the world. And the war in World War I, it, was also, it also affected the whole world. And so we can kind of group that together. We can cluster that together as a major sign, right? Uh, world War I and the Spanish influenza. And so World War I by itself, that enough is a sign. But when it is coupled with the Spanish influenza that killed 50 million people, that tells you World War I was a major sign. It was a sign that really signaled something important. In other words, World War I is a major sign of the end because it was followed by 1918. It was followed by famines and also earthquakes. This is why it was a major event. And fast forward 100 years later, 2020 to 2022, what do we have now? COVID pandemic, right? And the COVID pandemic, like the Spanish influenza, is worldwide. And it has caused many people to begin to lose hope. It has affected our life in so many ways. It has destroyed so many people, killed so many people. And many people think, you know, will it ever end? Because right now we're not yet home free. And when you look at global cases of COVID, it's all over the world, right? And so there seems to be a pattern here. 2022, COVID pandemic. And when you look at a chiastic structure here, this is like a chiastic structure. If you remember the chiastic structure of scripture and the events of history, this is like a chiastic structure. And so if in the, the beginning of the end of the earth, started in 1914, World War I, and then finished with the influenza pandemic. This time, what happens first is the COVID pandemic. This seems to be forecasting a war, global war, 2022, 2023, 2024, maybe. I mean, it, it seems like what's happening in the world today in, our, in uh, Israel, in, in, in Europe, in, between the, the Arab nations and Israel and involving Russia and Ukraine and China and the US, it seems like we're headed for another global war, right? And so it seems to fit kind of like the pattern, does it not? And so what does this tell us? It tells us the 1914 war was, in fact, a signal. It was a signal of warning as though Yahweh was announcing that the end of the world is near. But there's still some time to prepare for that. And this is long time of preparation is what the Bible calls long suffering. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so when we look at 1918, uh, 1914, 1918, and then 2022, 2022 and beyond, we know in between is Yahuwah's long suffering. And so Basically, what we have when World War One was uh, began, when World War One began, it was like the announcement, the announcement of the ends of the earth. But before the final end comes, because Yahushua says it's not yet the end; it's just the beginning of sorrows. But before the final end comes, there's going to be another warning, like the pandemic, global global war, and what's happening in the world today, right? 
climate change, the failing economy, um, solar flares, asteroids and meteors. All of these things are happening all at once, like a pregnant woman in labor, increasing in frequency and intensity because the long suffering of Yahuwah is about to finish. And so we need to really prepare ourselves. We talked about this in our previous Bible study, remember, the long suffering of Yahuwah, and we can consider the long suffering of Yahuwah to be 120 years. And a jubilee, which is the number 50, represents Yahuwah's completeness so that he can give liberation to those who have been in bondage, those who are slaves, because after 50 years, right, the slaves become free. All of us are slaves to sin. But after 50, the jubilee year, there's going to be a liberation. And the world will be redeemed by the kinsman redeemer, who is our king, Yahusha. And so 50 sets of 120 years of Yahuwah's long suffering, that's 6,000 years. And so we could be, head, we're almost at the completion of that 6,000 years. So one could consider the 50th set of 120 years of Yahuwah's long suffering as the ends of the earth. Because we're now, we have already entered the 50th set of Yahuwah's long suffering. And so the clock is ticking. And before the clock began to tick, there was an announcement. Oftentimes when the Jubilee is going to come, there's an announcement throughout the land. And that announcement is made by trumpets. Trumpets. And so when the war happened, 1914, it was like a trumpet that sounded calling the people to prepare. But there's Yahuwah's long suffering before it is finally completed. And before it is completed, there's going to be another set of warnings. Yahuwah is warning us now because of what is happening throughout the world. But what is important to note is that war in 1914 was significant. The war which broke out in July 27 or 28, 1914 is the start of the ends of the earth. It was like the trumpet being blown to warn the people of the land. Is there additional biblical evidence that the war, which broke out July 28, 1914, is the beginning or the start of the ends of the earth? Yes. What is that? Let's read Revelation chapter 8, 1 to 2 and 7. When he opened the seventh seal, want to pause there for a while. How many seals are there? How many? Seven seals. We haven't yet gone deep into our study of the seals of Revelation. It's what we're going to do uh, hopefully next week. We're going to look at seal number one, seal number two, and we will look at the historical fulfillment of these seals leading up all the way to the seventh seal. And you're going to see a pattern how everything falls together. But for today, we're going to jump to the seventh seal. Is that okay? Because this is our topic. So we skip the first six seals and we jump to the seventh seal. Is that okay? And so we'll jump to the seventh seal, which is the last seal. And if it's the last seal, what does that tell you? It's at the end of the earth, right? We're at the end. We're at the end, brethren. Yeah, the, the trumpets are being sounded. So when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given how many trumpets? Seven trumpets. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was 
burned up. And so what we have here is the seventh seal, and we know that the seventh seal has how many trumpets? There's the seventh seal, it has seven trumpets, and we just read, you know, so if the seven seals have seven trumpets, we can say that the beginning, the beginning of sorrows, we can say that the beginning of the ends of the earth starts right there, trumpet number one, seal number seven. Would that be fair to say? That seal number seven, trumpet number one is the beginning of the ends of the earth. Yeah, it gives you some time before trumpet seven and bow seven is uh, met it up, right? And so we need to look at the event that is described by trumpet one. The angels are given trumpets. Remember, uh, we are looking into a vision here. Apostle John, when he wrote the seals, he's seeing a vision, and then to the best of his ability, he's writing down what he sees in his vision, right? And so what happens when the trumpet is blown? Let's read Revelation 8, verse 7. The first angel, the one who has a trumpet, sounded, so the, seventh trump, the, the first trumpet of the seventh seal sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So this is the event that is to take place when the, the first trumpet of the seventh seal is blown. Was this already fulfilled? I believe so. I believe this is describing World War number one. Remember, World War One erupted when? In 1914. And the total fatalities are estimated to be about 15 million. World War One is famous for its trench warfare. And so here is a description or a map of the area where they fought. And so they fought in, in the land. This is the uh, northwest portion of the trenches. And you see the red, the red bold-faced squiggly line going from the sea all the way to the south. But those, those are trenches. And so what happened during the war was they were fighting through the trenches. And so this is why it was called trench warfare. They were battling in trench warfare. And so World War I brought many new changes to how wars were fought. The artillery underwent the most revolutionary and scientific advances during World War I. Bayonets, pistols, rifles, machine guns, flamethrowers, grenades and tanks were also used. Some lighter weight weaponry such as trench mortar was also developed. Designed, designed to fire a projectile at a steep angle, usually about 45 degrees, so that it can reach enemies in the trench by falling down straightly. And so here's an example of the trench mortar. And so they would fire a projectile. And once it makes impact, it will detonate. And so it is fired from a 45 degree angle. And so when it falls down, it falls down in a straight line, right? And so you have all this artillery. You have gun, gunfire. You have uh, pistols, rifles, grenades, flamethrowers, the trench and mortar. When you look at all this artillery and it's being fired one against each other, and it's causing blood and releasing gunpowder, what will that look like? Well, it looks like that. Hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. They were thrown to the earth. And so the hail that 
Apostle John saw it were the artillery shells, the firing of the uh, trench mortar, and all of the artillery that was used during the trench warfare. And what also does the Bible reveal concerning uh, this event? Well, it mentions something's going to happen to the earth. I want to point your attention to the earth. The word the is a definite article. So it's, it's speaking about a specific location of the earth. Because when you say, for example, an apple, it could be any apple. But if you say the apple, it's more specific. And so in this vision, the Apostle John is speaking about a specific landmass or specific landmasses of the earth. And so in that landmass, what did he see? He said a, three, a third of the trees were burned up and the green grass was burned up. When this trench warfare was taking place, how do historians describe the aftermath? The heavy explosives bombarded everything in the terrain in between the two troops opposing Arby's trenches. The destruction was so devastating that the terrain was later, later given the term no man's land. The intensive bombardment reshaped the terrain by not only burning up many green trees in the war zones, but also burning up all the green grass and overturning soil to the extent that the earth's surface crust was destroyed in the area exposing the next spill, the next soil layer underneath. And so because of the trench warfare, the earth was harmed, the trees were burned, the grass was burned and destroyed, the soil, it was destroyed and it was overturned. This is why when you look at the aftermath of the war, when you look at the terrain, what do they call it? No man's land. This is how it looked like. It was completely destroyed. The earth, the grass, the trees were destroyed because of World War Number One. Okay, that's why it was described in this way by the Apostle John. So that's the first trumpet of the seventh seal, and then the second trumpet is blown. Right? We read verse seven. Let's read eight to nine. And the second angel sounded. This is the second trumpet of the seventh seal. And something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and the third of the living creatures in the sea died, and the third of the ships were destroyed. Interesting. Because we just came from World War I, the first trumpet. The second trumpet, our theory is, our guess, right? It would be World War Number Two, right? And how does the Apostle John describe this event of the, uh, of the second trumpet of the seven seal. Well, he mentions there's a lot of definite articles there. The sea, the living creatures, the ships. And we'll get to that later on. But what I want you to focus on right now is the sea. What is that in reference to? Well, the apostle John saw a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, when he said the sea, what could he have been referring to? I believe he was referring to Japan, which was surrounded by sea, surrounded by water. And what does it mean that a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea? What does that look like? 
Remember this? Does that look like a mountain of fire? It does, doesn't it? And it was hurled into the sea. What produced that? It was the first hydrogen bomb that was sent to Hiroshima or Hiroshima in Japan, right? And if you look at the description of the Apostle John, it mentions a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So the fire was thrown into Japan, right? It didn't say that a, a great mountain was thrown into the sea and there was fire. So the fire was before it went to the sea or to Japan. It turns out that the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, Hiroshima, Japan was named Little Boy. Regarding this bomb, the National Science Digital Library provides the following explanation. On August 6, 1945, it was exploded at an altitude of about 1,900 feet above the city of Hiroshima, Japan. So unlike conventional explosives, where it makes contact and explodes, with the atom bomb, the little boy, it actually exploded in air, right? Not 1,900 feet above the city of Hiroshima. It produced that mountain of fire. This is why the great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. It was thrown into Japan. So it's describing the atomic bomb that uh, destroyed Japan. Well, what kind of destruction did it produce? Lots of, a lot of destruction because it mentions a third of the living creatures were of the, in the sea dying. A third of the, the living creatures in Japan died. And who are considered creatures? James 118 of his own will he brought us forth with the word of truth that he might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In Mark 16, human beings were called creatures. Human beings are creatures. And so when Apostle John says a third of the living creatures in the sea died, a third of human beings, the population in Japan, died. And according to historical research, it turns out the population of Hiroshima then range from 340 to 350,000, and the fatalities due to the atomic detonation are estimated to be around 90,000 to 166,000. The estimated fatality rate is between 25.7% and 48.8% of the population then. And so roughly, if you look at the midpoint of that, that's like one-third, one-third of the living creatures, one-third of the, the population died in Hiroshima. What else? Well, it also mentions a third of the ships. Was that also fulfilled? Well, the number of total ships that participated in World War II, 105,127 ships were transporting humans, food, artillery, fuel, and others. And the total number of ships that sunk, I mean, 36,387 ships. Calculation reveals 34.6%, which is one-third, right? And that's what it says. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And so Revelation 8 matches what Yahushua says in Matthew 20, 24, 6 to 8. Wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. The two world wars were depicted by King Yahushua to mark the beginning of the ends of the earth. And Revelation says the same thing. Because in Revelation, the first two trumpets were sounded when the seventh seal was opened. 
And you notice what happened because of these wars. What happened because of these wars? The world war brought damage to the earth, the trees, and the seas. Okay? So the war brought damage to the earth, the trees, and the seas. Why is that significant? Because it's connected to the work that Yahuwah mentioned in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. How so? Well, we read Revelation 8, 7 to 9, where it mentions that the earth, the trees, and the seas were destroyed because of the world war. But what does this connect to? Let's go to Revelation 7, 1 down to 3. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice of the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. How many here are familiar with this passage? I think a lot of us are. We know this passage. Revelation 7, 1 down to 3. What is this passage all about? It's about the work of sealing the servants of God on their foreheads, which we know from our previous studies is about the preaching of the gospel in the mind, right? So that the Holy Spirit can be received in the heart. Once the Holy Spirit is received in the heart, they are sealed. When you're sealed, you are belonging to Yahusha. So this is the work of bringing people to Yahusha. Okay, that's the work of sealing. And when will this work begin? Well, the Bible tells us it coincides with a wind. The four winds. The wind that when it's blown, take note, when the wind is blown, which comes from four directions, four winds, combined to one wind, when it's blown, it's going to bring harm to what? The earth, the sea, the trees. Does that sound familiar? You see how it's connected to Revelation 8? Okay, so let's pause there for a while. What is that wind? We know in prophecy, uh, the wind refers to war in Jeremiah 4, 11, 12, and 19. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward, toward the daughter of my people. Not to fans or cleanse, a wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard of my soul. The sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Oftentimes when you have a trumpet, it's a warning for what? The war. This is why the seventh trumpet, or the first trumpet of the seventh seal, that is probably war like what we have described. But here, a wind is also like is also being portrayed as war. Because here, the prophet Jeremiah knows that the people of Yahuwah, namely uh, Judah, is going to be destroyed by an army. And this army is likened to a scorching wind. And so wind is likened, is likened to the army that will come and destroy Judah and Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah 49, 36, against Elam, I will bring the four winds from the four corners of heaven and scatter them toward all, toward all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. So the winds, again, 
it is depicted as the attacking army causing a scattering of a nation, in this case, Elam. And so when we look at the metaphors used to depict war, wind, a wind from the four corners, what does that represent? It is a world war. It is a war that is coming from all directions. And so what is happening in Revelation 7, 1 to 3? The Bible says the four winds, the wind is being held. What does that mean? The war has not yet started. It has not yet blown on the earth, the sea, or any tree. The war represented by the four winds has not started yet in Revelation 7, 1, 2, 3. It's not blowing yet. That's why it says it's being held back. Who's holding it back? Four angels are holding it back, right? And what is the significance of holding it back? Well, Bible also says in verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God. And so the Bible says, Revelation says, that the war cannot yet start, right, until we have sealed the servants of our God. And so World War I, which is what the Bible is talking about, the two world wars in Revelation 8, here in Revelation 1, it hasn't started yet. It's about, it could start, but the angel says, do not get start. Yahuwah's will is, do not get start until we have sealed the servants of our God on, on their foreheads. Now, when we look at that phrase, we have sealed, it appears that the only time the war will commence is after the sealing work is done, right? Until we have sealed the servants of our God on their Foreheads. But when we look at the actual Greek, the literal word-for-word -word translation of the Greek, this is what it says. It says, until we seal. You notice how it's different? Here in the King James, it says, until we have sealed. But here it says, until we seal. It doesn't say, until we have sealed. And so I became curious and looked at how the Greek is parsed, and it shows you right there. And VSAA, I1P, uh, basically means the following. It is a subjunctive aorist tense verb. Now, you probably have no idea what that means, right? And so, went to uh, Socratic.org, where it teaches you about Greek verbs. And this is what it says about the, so, this is what it says about the aorist uh, tense. It says linguist, linguistically, it just means that the verb, this is for the, uh, the subjunctive aorist. You see that? Right? And so this is the explanation. Linguistically, it just means that the verb form is unmarked, sort of like the infinitive of any verb today. An English example might be I go, a definite action in the present compared to the modified forms for past. I went or the future I will go. It is, it just is. It is a pure Form. This is why if it's a present, simple, unmodified verb in the present, it makes sense why when you look at the literal translation, it's not we have sealed, but we seal because it's in the subjunctive aorist tense. 
And so when you have knowledge of the Greek in that way, it makes sense that it says we seal. Now, when we look at the prophecy this way, it makes sense because it says do not harm the earth, right? Until we seal. And so now we have a sentence structure, a sentence structure that follows this pattern, not until, right? What does that mean? It is used uh, for starting the point at which finally, uh, at which something finally happens, becomes possible or becomes truth. For example, do not leave the house until we arrive. What does that mean? What must happen first before you can leave the house? We must arrive, right? So we arrive must happen first, and then you can leave the house. Do not start the class until the bell rings. So what must happen first? The bell must ring, and then you can start class. Do not destroy the house until it is safe. And so what needs to happen first? It must be safe, and then you can destroy the house. And so when we apply that pattern, what we have is do not harm until we seal. And so what does that tell us? It tells us the starting point is the sealing. When that begins, the wind cannot blow. In other words, there's going to be a preaching of the gospel to bring people to Yahusha. Once that begins, the war can now begin. And so what happens first is the preaching and then the war. You see the difference? And so when this preaching is taking place, what is going to happen? Four winds will now be released, and the wind will bring harm to the earth, the sea, and the trees. What is that? World War number one and World War number two. And so this tells us there's a correspondence between the time ends of the earth, the work of bringing people to Yahusha, right? And World War number one. And so we saw World War One is a major, major sign, not only Matthew, but also in Revelation. So it's a major sign. It is a time marker of significance. July 27 or July 28, 1914, date, the exact date is really inconsequential. What is important is it happened. <laughs> along that time frame, okay? So there was war that took place, and before that war can take place, the sealing has to begin. And what is that sealing that was started before World War I started? Revelation 7, 4 to 8, and I heard a number of those who were sealed. And so here's the Apostle John. He's describing the wind, and he's describing the work of sealing the people of Yahuwah. And then all of a sudden, he hears the number of those who were sealed. So he sees the future beyond the beginning of the preaching. He sees the, the completion of the work of sealing. And he says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribes of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And so what do you notice about 
the work depicted in Revelation 7, 4 to 8, which corresponds to the timeline or the time frame of World War number one. What is that work right there? It's the bringing together who? The tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel, right? Which is what Isaiah 43, 5 to 6 is all about. Do you see the connection? Everything's connected. And so Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, when it speaks about, I will bring your descendants. He's talking about the physical descendants of Jacob and Israel. These are the tribes of Israel that were dispersed. But they'll be gathered and brought together, brought to Yahusha, so they become sons and daughters of God at a time called ends of the earth, which is marked by World War Number One, July 1914. And in Revelation 7, also John, after describing the work of Yahuwah concerning the bringing together of the tribes of Israel, it was very specific. He, he then goes on to describe this work, 7 verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude who no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. What is that? That's the salvation of those who are not of Israel, Gentiles, right? All nations, tribes, people, tongues. This is the work of bringing people to Yahusha, people who are Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul led that. And so John saw, sees the finished, the finished work of bringing the Gentiles into Yahusha so that they can receive salvation. And so he begins with Revelation 7, 48, and then 7, verse 9. But the question is, why? Why does Yahuwah bring the tribes of Israel together in a time called ends of the earth that began 1914. Why did Yahuwah decide to do that, the bringing together of Israel, not until 1914? Why? The answer to that is this, because of the mystery of the Gentiles. And this is what we're going to bring to you in our Bible History Project, which is this Thursday. Okay, which is also in preparation for our special worship service. That is our Bible study for today. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Abba, Yahuwah Almighty Elohim, thank you so much for the blessings that you have given to us. Our calling and election, we will make sure, we will make firm because it is a gift from you. Father, thank you for giving us insight into the events that must take place prior to the second advent of your son. We are truly thankful because you want us to repent. You are giving us signs. You are giving us prophecy fulfilled already to point us to what we need to do to prepare fully for our salvation. Bless every one of us, Father, that we may be fully ready to receive the crown of righteousness. Our King Yahusha, may you please remember your servants, increase our faith and bless us. Help us to go deep in faith. Help us to know you more and more and help us to dedicate our life to you, to love you, to praise you, to think of you, to focus on you because you are the purpose of our calling and election, that we be brought to you and we remember what you have promised 
none of us will be cast away. When we approach you by faith, with repentant hearts, you will not cast us away. You will raise us up to life on the day of salvation. Please help us to be strong. Help us to be committed, to be devoted in the work that has been given. Father, thank you for listening to your people. Help us to always be prepared to share our faith with other people, to be a witness to you, a witness for, your, for our Mashiach, your son, Yahushua. Thank you, Father, for listening to our prayers. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.